listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast with Ian Tulloch and Anthony Petrielli. Welcome to the MLHS Podcast. My name's Ian Tulloch. I'm here with Anthony Petrielli as always. And because this is such an important edition of the MLHS Podcast, we brought two more guests today. Me and Anthony haven't done a deep dive on the Leafs playoff run, if you can call it that, in the 2021 season. So we wanted to bring on two of our favorite Leafs bloggers to do a full autopsy here. We have Acting the Fooliman and Arvin joining us from Pension Plan Puppets. They both do an excellent podcast, Back to Excited, which I've been listening to for the last couple of years. It's been fun to have them in my ears late at night when I'm listening, trying to think about the Leafs in a fun way, fun nerdy way. That's a weird. That's a weird thing to say to start this podcast. I, as I but... say it out loud, I realize how strange it is. But you know what, guys? It's great to have you on. Thanks for joining us on this weird occasion. Well, th- thank you for having us. I'm flattered to have been in your ears. I think is <laughs> how so I'm going to try to put that. It does sound a bit weird, but it's okay. It's good to be here. But now that you revealed that, I think you know. You know what? The I have something in the oven. I maybe need to get <laughs> yeah. going now. You have to give your cat a bath. <laughs> I have a feeling this is going to be a cathartic ad- edition of the podcast because. The Leafs coming into 2021, obviously the expectations were the regular season doesn't matter that much. What matters is what you do in the playoffs. What they did in the regular season was post the best 5-5 defensive results they've ever posted. I want to say since we were able to track this stuff. In the playoffs, they completely imploded, imploded again in big moments. It was frustrating. The power play never seemed to fix itself after about halfway through the season. There's a lot to dive into. Arvind, I'll start with you. When you're trying to break down what the hell happened with the Leafs in 2021, what's your answer? Because I struggle with it, and I try really hard to come up with evidence to justify my opinions, and I don't know what my opinion is right now. Well, I mean, when we talk about, okay, what did the Leafs do in 2021, it starts and ends with the, with the playoff series, as you alluded to. Um, the regular season did not matter, right? It, it was, you know, just getting to the playoffs. You have a, a chance to do something really strong, really great here. Uh, the North Division, I think its weakness was overstated at times, right? People were talking about it as if it was like the OHL. Um, but, you know, the reality is there weren't uh, teams that we would consider as traditionally strong contenders in it. The Leafs appeared to be the best team on paper by the bookmakers, by the modelers, by the what writers, all those sorts of things. So, yeah, this is a good opportunity. Uh, regular season went to plan, playoffs, not so much. And there are many, many reasons why, that we can get into for why the playoffs didn't go to plan. But, you know, the reality is the Leafs have committed a huge amount of their cap money, their cap space, uh, to four players. And uh, in particular, actually really to three players, right? Three players making uh, basically 11 million or more. And they got one goal out of those three players in the playoffs. Now, of course, there's mitigating factors there. John Tavares played 10 minutes, right? Uh, both Matthews and Marner, you could argue, got a little bit unlucky. But, you know, when you commit to that sort of cap allocation, you are saying that you need your stars to play like stars. You need your stars to be slump-proof. That's not the only reason the Leafs didn't make it, but if you're starting anywhere, I think you have to start at the Leafs didn't get the production they needed to get out of their top players. And that sounds about right to me. I look at the the goal totals, and they had, between Matthews and Marner, one goal on 47 shots. It feels like loser mentality to keep mentioning 2%. Oh, they can't keep shooting 2%. That's not going to happen in the future. We said that in the Columbus series. It's what I kept screaming to Anthony all season about Taylor Hall. And I want to say he shot in the teens percentage-wise. How many goals did he have in the playoffs? I don't want to... Wow, okay, we're going to do this? Is this what today's podcast is going to (laughs) be? Two, just want to be clear. Two goals in the playoffs? There we go. But to be fair, one of those goals, one of those goals, I think, was in... It was the goal to force overtime in game two uh, against Washington, 
right? Big, big goal. They were going, they were probably going to lose that game without it. They end up winning the series in five, right? So, like, you know, sometimes it is those small margins. Oh, yeah, 100%. So, acting the fool, I mean, you had a great article last week that blew up on Twitter. And I think the main reason it got so much traction is because it really resonated with a lot of Leafs fans. A lot of your work, you do this cool thing where you have the optimist and the pessimist. You have someone who's trying to look at things from a positive perspective, someone who's going to look at it from a negative perspective, and you're constantly battling with yourself as you obsess over your favorite sports team. I think a lot of us watch sports in that regard. Unfortunately, you're a fan of the Toronto Maple Leafs, and you don't get to enjoy good things in life. So for anyone who happened to miss that article, would you be able to break down some of the the points you were making? Because I thought it did a great job of breaking down just how frustrating of an experience it is cheering for this team, which should win, but doesn't. Uh, yeah, I mean, the optimist-pessimist thing was basically trying to look at, okay, what's left to believe in with this team? And I think one of the reasons this series was so devastating, aside from the fact that it sucks to lose for the billionth time in a row, is that it seemed to threaten the basic idea of how this team is built. This team is built on star offense. It says, when push comes to shove, we should have the best players on the ice a decent percentage of the time. In Game 7, we looked like we had shells of the best players on the ice. We did not look like Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner were effective. And it's very hard to get around that fact, even if you say, okay, it's a couple of games. It's, you know, particularly Game 6 and 7, they looked especially bad. The expected goals in this series were 67%. That's what the nerds like me are going to bring up. Yeah. Right, right. And, you know, up to a point... It's tempting to just accept that and say, look, sometimes those things happen, except that's what we said last year against Columbus. And we didn't get the most impressive performances against Boston either in the elimination games. And it's starting to feel like, okay, if the regular season and the playoffs are different, as hockey people have been saying that they are since time immemorial, and as we kind of feel like they are, is there something wrong with this team? in a fundamental way where it can't get it done, where it's at least easier to slow them down than it ought to be in the regular season. And I'm not saying that I know that for sure, but it's hard for me not to at least be open to the possibility. I'm not okay running this off about shooting percentage again. And maybe that's emotional reasoning, but I can't do it. The line that that killed me was, and now I'm just reading it, but people hate the Toronto Maple Leafs for plenty of reasons. Some hate the Leafs because they cheer for rival franchises. Personally, I hate the Leafs because I cheer for the Leafs. And that was when I was like, we're, we're having these guys on the podcast 100%. Because that, <laughs> that had me and my feels. I mean, I'll just, I'll just be honest. Like, I know Ian, we want to break things down, and we will. But like, I'm sick to my stomach watching the Habs in the cup final. Like, honestly, I am. Because you can throw whatever you want to me. But at 3-1, they had them down and out. They did. Like it was it was all but done. And to me they screwed around in game five. They had a a really good recipe in game four. That was about as complete a playoff game as I've seen in their five year run. Other than maybe that game five against Boston in Boston in two thousand nineteen, where they won like two one and, and they played about as perfect a road game as I've ever seen a Leaf team play. Take the three two lead before they pissed it away at home and then, you know, did a classic game seven Leafs in Boston. But other than that game, that that game four to me was about as pitcher perfect. Montreal had nothing. And then they were heading back home. And they said, yeah, let's just screw around with the roster and change things. Like, Travis Dermott played about as good of a game as you could play, given his role. And they are like, yeah, you can get back out for Rasmus Sandin. 
And then Sandine said, here's two free goals. And I don't even blame the kid. I blame the coaching staff for putting him in that situation. We were talking about having Scotty Bowman on before we started recording. And I was thinking about this a little bit after we had him on because we kind of slipped into him in casual conversation. I believe this was off the recording, but we were saying, oh yeah, like the Avs didn't play Boehm Byram at all in the in the playoffs. Like that was a little weird. And he was like, no, it's not really that weird. He he was out for the year. Like you don't just throw a rookie into, you know, hockey that good, that cold. You know, it's just not a recipe for success. And here's Rasmus Sand. Boehm Byram actually played this year. Rasmus Sandin did not play. And he didn't play, like, he wasn't that, like, he had an okay game two because he scored a goal. But in game one, he got roasted for a goal. Dermot came in in game three and played, or game four and played well. And they're like, yeah, let's just hand this kid right back into the lineup for no reason. And, you know, that backfired. And their overall tone of play, I thought, was just really casual for that game five. And, you know, you talk about Matthews and, and Marner and, you know, bottom line, kind of when it happened, I was like, I'll give them game five. Okay, they kind of came around and... They, they screwed off a little bit, but they'll put their foot down in game six, and then they got ran over in game six. Like, they straight up got ran over for 50 minutes. And that was the worst thing, because if you've, if you've been following this team as long as I have, and we're talking like 30 years now. Are you that old? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, on the dot. And uh, But when you think back to the early 2000 teams, they never had the most talent. But at least they worked their bags off. And you knew that they were going to overachieve based on, you know, the t- level of talent they had or relative to the talent that they had on their roster. But now we just look at the team and go, they're the most talented team playing. And they lose to teams that are less talented to them twice in a row now. Boston, I can I can handle because they actually had a number of studs on that team. But not Columbus and not this Montreal team. As good as they've been since, I don't care. They should not have lost, even with the Tavares injury. I wanted to touch on Montreal real quick because, like you said, they've actually been good since that Leafs series. The first four games, Toronto absolutely dominated that series. What's interesting is that if you look at against uh, the Vegas Golden Knights, Montreal actually controlled the the share of scoring chances and expected goals in that series. Not something I would have expected, but again, watching this Montreal team, I can read a Jay Fresh article breaking down how well that they're playing and how a Cole Caulfield is special offensively. Or I can listen to a Dmitry Filipovich and Mike Johnson break down some of the nuances of their game on a podcast, and it can be very interesting as a hockey fan. But as a Leafs fan, watching this Habs team go all the way to the cup final, it's got to just break you. And I'm sure that's how a lot of us feel right now, is just emotionally broken because you you knew this was going to be the Leafs' best chance to run the table and make their way past two rounds of the playoffs because it doesn't get any easier than this Montreal Canadiens team who didn't play Cole Caulfield in the first couple games of the series and Winnipeg Jets in the second round, you're never going to have an easier path to the final. So that's obviously frustrating, but something I've got to ask is if Montreal is succeeding this way with big, heavy defensemen who don't exactly move the puck that great, does that tell us something about the game of hockey that changes in the playoffs i know we've alluded to this a few times arvin you're like me you're obsessed with basketball i'm sure you're watching it right now we've seen players like rudy gobert or ben simmons get exposed in the playoffs for having very apparent weaknesses in their game that defenses or in some cases offenses can take advantage of would you say that maybe the leafs have that issue i know that we like bringing this up all skilled players along the perimeter they can't play and then William Nylander is Toronto's best player in the first round by being speedy and dominating off the rush. But when I think of someone like Mitch Marner comes to mind, 
Is his style of play and the fact that he's a non-threat on the power play as a shooter, does that make them too easy to game plan against to the point where his regular season results might not be indicative of the player he might be in the playoffs? Or am I reading too much into a small sample? Because sometimes we do that. Yeah, so there's a lot of interesting things to get into uh, with that. Uh, I will push back on one thing. I think I think Gobert uh, in particular, this isn't an NBA podcast, so I'll keep this very, very short. Uh, I think Gobert... Uh, the degree to which he was invalidated in the playoffs is overstated. And I think the Jazz's real issue was their perimeter defense, not, not Rudy Gobert. Um, but anyways, um, so with regards to your first question about, you know, do, if Montreal continues to, to succeed this way, and if they, you know, God forbid, win the cup, um, you know, does that make me change my opinion of them or of how to build contenders? And for me, the answer is no, not really. I think Montreal is who we thought they were. I don't think they've magically become a much better team. They've always been good at controlling play at five on five, right? Always. They've never really had much shooting talent. That's been addressed to some degree with Caulfield, you know, too early to say for sure, but he looks like he absolutely has the ability to be a special shooter uh, in the league. We know that the Habs special teams has uh, been, you know, not great historically. It's power play in particular. It's been on a hot run of penalty killing this um, postseason. Part of that is maybe design or systemic. Part of that is also almost certainly a bit of luck. Um, and most importantly, they're getting good goaltending, right? And that's always been the thing with the Habs, where, you know, it, it, despite all their flaws, the Habs are a good five-on-five team that, with good goaltending, can beat anyone. And to me, that's exactly what's kind of happened to them, right? Um, when Fulman and I were doing our, our preview pod, we said that this is the part that scares you about the Habs. They, they, if they get goaltending, they're good. And... Every NHL playoff team, you know, there's no Buffaloes here. Every NHL playoff team has something about them. They're not without merit entirely. The Habs have some things going for them. I don't think they're the best team in the league. I don't think they're a top five team in the league, despite this. Um, so, so that's to answer the first part of your question. Regarding Marner specifically, I, you know what? I go back and forth on this. I think specifically the power play stuff, there's more of an argument there to me than at five on five that he is uniquely unsuited for the playoffs. And, and the reason is because um, power plays are more structured. They're the most structured part of hockey, which is overall very, very unstructured. And when someone has uh, very kind of easily definable weaknesses in an area where uh, a team can exert some control, some structure, those can be exploited a lot more readily than when someone is more complete. With Marner, um, as you've mentioned, he's not a shooting threat on the power play, and the least power play is set up in such a way where, with everything running through him, and without other elite shooting threats, you know, especially playing you know Joe Thornton on, on PP1, um, there, there, there's ways to shut things down, right? So I think the, the usage really did Marner no favors here. We've seen before, you can build a very good power play with Mitch Marner as a central focus of it, right? The, the Marner JVR power play was phenomenal, top in the league. If you look at expected goals that had the the best results since we tracked this stuff in 2007-2008. The- they scored goals and some decent goals in the playoffs too, right? That uh that overtime winner against Washington was that power play unit. Um the the one that was it Kadri who scored, yeah. Uh so yeah, it's it, it's the, the I think the real issue is you can maybe have one non-shooter in a position of importance on power plays. We had two when you put Thornton there. That's the part that's inexcusable. And that's a failure of the coaching staff. But yeah, it also is an indictment of Marner to some degree where, you know, you're paying him like a top five player in the league. You would hope that he's able to transcend these sorts of issues to some degree or not require such a specific usage to get the most out of him. Now, 
to be honest, like that, we knew that contract wasn't overpay when it was signed, and the boat on that has sailed, but it's coming home to roost in a very obvious way here. Yeah, he was never going to be two and a half million dollars more valuable than Sebastian Ajo or a million and a half more valuable than Miko Rantanen or however you want to compare him to Point and Kachuk who signed on less term. That was never going to be the case. And we all knew that the second he signed the contract, that's why there was so much backlash at the time. I don't want to go back and relitigate it right now because I'm not sure how much is to be gained from it. But you guys brought up on your podcast after the Leafs got eliminated the fact that, look, if you are trying to find ways to improve your roster, at some point you do need to consider the contracts that are on the books. And in a salary cap league, you need cap efficiency. And if you're not getting it from certain players, should you look at potentially moving those players where you can get cap efficiency? I don't want to turn this into a trade Marner podcast, but I know that's where a lot of Leafs fans had landed over the last couple weeks trying to look at ways to improve this team. I've been on the quote-unquote trade Riley camp for a while now because I'm afraid of his next contract. I'm afraid that the next contract that he signs is going to pay him for past performance instead of future performance. And if Rasmus Sandin is taking his PP1 time, I don't want to pay Morgan Riley for the 50, 60-point player he used to be when he's only going to give you 30 or 40-point seasons on PP2. So... With Mitch Marner, even though this season he scored at 102-point pace, was their best penalty killer, had strong defensive metrics at 5-on-5. Five five. I know some people made fun of the fact that he got a couple Selkie votes, but he was an excellent 200-foot player at 5-on-5. Five five. Frankly, I didn't have too much of a problem with it. I thought he was great this year. The issue is, in the playoffs, when you can back off of him, is he able to pass through that seam in the middle of the ice? Fullman, when it comes to Marner and cap allocation and how you go about fixing problems this offseason... What conclusions have you come to over the last couple of weeks? Because I'm sure you've been thinking about this late at night. Right. The basic question is this. If there is something wrong with the way this team is built, where it is flawed in the playoffs, you have to look at, okay, how do we reallocate money? Well, Nylander is probably worth his contract. John Tavares has a no movement clause. Austin Matthews is a top five player in the world. You get really quickly to, well, probably we have to trade Mitch Marner. And that's compounded by the fact that, as we've said, his deal was the most obvious overpay the minute it happened. And I think maybe on a more emotional level, Mitch Barner still seems like a teenage kid. This isn't his fault. That's his face. He just looks like that. But when things go badly and he has to trot out in front of the press and give a statement or anything, he can look a little bit like a teenage kid who crashed dad's car and doesn't want to admit to it. And I think that that really gets on people's nerves. That isn't really relevant, but if Mitch Marner is not the kind of player that can drive things by himself, and I think that that's an open question when he's not a huge shooting threat, when he can be pushed to the perimeter, you have to wonder, okay, is it worthwhile to have him being the seventh highest cap hit in the NHL? And if not, he is where you reallocate. I think the statement of keeping Marner is basically, we think this team is basically capable the way it is, and it got a little bit unlucky, and maybe a little bit of the yips. But I don't think that trading Morgan Riley, it's a big move, but I don't think that that's like a significant change to the structure of the team. You're still saying, I believe in this core. So I think Kyle Dubas has decided that's what he's going to do. Um, if it were up to me, I would be at least exploring trade Mitch Marner. Anthony, do you believe in this core? Uh, the players, yes actually uh which is shocking i know um it's actually it's actually more so on the coaching side and actually to be honest at this point even the management side because 
I look at at certain things. So we talked about Marner there. Who act? He did have a good season. I'm not going to take that away from him. He absolutely did. It would be stupid to suggest otherwise. But should he have led all forwards in average time on ice per game? Like, did they need to do that this year? I think that's dumb. I think you're setting yourself up for for failure from a fatigue standpoint. Yeah, and also it just makes no sense. Like, I don't understand why you don't try to build depth. So when I talk about management, I I think potentially one of one of Kyle Dubas and Co.'s biggest blind spots is he really struggles to build out an effective bottom six that they can actually give ice time to and actually has some versatility and ability to move up the lineup. Because right now I'm looking at so so far he's re-signed Spezza and Simmons and everyone's like cheering for it. And I'm looking at their bottom six on paper and it's the Engvall, Kerfoot, Mikheyev line right now. And Kerfoot might not even be on this team next year. Yeah. So we'll stick with it for now. But yes, the caveat that he could get claimed or whatever. And then a fourth line of Simmons, Brooks, and Spezza. And that sucks. Like, that's just, that's a really bad bottom six. Like, it sucks. Spezza was fantastic this year. Like, I'll give him that. But, but you're playing him with Brooks and Simmons? Yeah, so... I don't again don't want to waste too much time on Wayne Simmons when we're trying to evaluate the whole season but again I think it might be indicative of a larger problem where the guys that were brought in over the last offseason Zach Bogosian thought he did a really good job on that third pair I bet you we see him resign shortly they sh- I hope they do resign Zach Bogosian he actually was good of of the vets he was the one I was hoping they would sign the most to be honest but again I was going to go on to list more vets like you said Joe Thornton Wayne Simmons and the idea was that we have this young group of elite forwards that we want to groom with some veterans that are going to give them whatever it is that we can't measure. Us nerds who are always trying to find the tangibles, these guys will bring them the intangibles. I'm worried that if you go too far in that direction, you just you stop trying to focus on putting the 12 best hockey players on the ice at forward and the six best hockey players on the ice at defense. And I know the Leafs had fantastic results this year, but... I don't know. I, I get I get worried that you're going too far in this other direction here. So I don't even know if some of the stuff comes from that angle. Because to be honest, like it's Wayne Simmons hasn't gone to the second round in ten years. What veteran experience are we talking about here? Getting hurt? <laughs> like, 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 come on. Well, I mean, I, I, I was someone who didn't love the the contract last year, um, and and this year, I mean. It's nothing to get annoyed about or mad about because, uh, you know, it's a variable amount. If the Leafs decide that he's not the right fit, then they can bury him. And whether they choose to do that, maybe that's another question that gets to what uh, Anthony was talking about. They won't. Like, I people are talking, they sign him for two years. Like, they're not burying him. Yeah, and I think that's, that's, that's very likely. And the reality is Simmons is basically a fourth liner, you know, basically a replacement level player now. It's not like he's killing you there. Um, there is kind of a lack of upside. But I think the fundamental problem is, you know, we name all these depth people. Well, it's very hard, I think, to consistently beat the market on depth, right? Because these guys are, by nature, very transient. You know, you're not signing them to, to long-term contracts. They're in and out every year. If someone plays really well, they play their way into a raise and probably off your team. Uh, and, you know, it's it's... To, to build out a really capable bottom six when you're spending so little money on them, I'm not saying it's impossible. You can certainly do that, and certainly pe- stats people often feel that, okay, we can churn this bottom six comfortably and get better than average play out of it. 
Um, and, and you can, but there's also going to be times where you miss, right? And the, the Leafs had a really sketchy bottom six at times, and that's despite having two incredibly high-value deals um, for uh, that they didn't pay a lot of money to, the first being Jason Spezza, the second being Alex Galchenyuk, who, who they just kind of found at the side of the road. And you can't bank on that happening every year. The fact that Spezza happened to be born in Mississauga and just wants to play here so that his kids can have some uh, stability. Like, that, that's, the Leafs didn't do anything to earn that. That's just blind luck. You can't count on that regularly. So, I mean, not to bring this back to the, the, the discussion about the, the cap allocation that Fuhlman brought up, but that's kind of what it comes down to. That you're, you're asking the management to do a very difficult job because uh, we've spent so much money on our top players and then our, our top, we're not getting um, the benefit of those players when you compare them to what other teams pay for their top players who are just as good as ours. Right? Like Tampa's top four is just as good, better than ours. I mean, not, not even going to argue that. They're better than our top players. They pay less to them. Right? Colorado's, same deal. Now, th- there's luck in there as well because of that ridiculous McKinnon deal with that ri- ridiculous Pasternak deal if we want to talk about Boston the same way. Um, but that's the reality of it. Right? And that, that cap allocation makes the job of fitting out the depth way harder. There's a point that I want to add there is the way that you can sometimes beat the market and have, you know, a bottom six where everyone's making no more than a million and a half or so, in the case of Akaya, is to get good young players on ELCs or cost-controlled players coming off their ELCs but are still cost-suppressed because they're RFAs and nobody does offer sheets. Uh, the Leafs are, as sort of a knock-on thing, paying the price for not drafting all that well for an extended period, also not having a ton of first-round picks. And... I've seen people that are much more optimistic about Kyle Dubis's drafting. I will defer to them. I don't know. I think sometimes uh, he appeals to what people want to believe in rather than what actually the results are. But let's say that we've maybe got some guys coming, but I don't see anyone who's going to walk into that roster next year and change the makeup. I'm not convinced Nick Robertson is ready, and I'm certainly not convinced that he's going to walk in and be an impact player. And I don't see any forwards coming up behind him who are all that close. Rodian Amirov is is away. Yeah, hope isn't a plan. If you're looking at ways for this roster to improve next year from within, it's Rasmus Sandin and or Nicholas Robertson proving that they can play higher in the lineup than we'd like them to. And I think realistically, Fulham, you take this opinion with prospects a lot, especially when you do the mm-hmm. top 25, under 25 we're always way higher on prospects than we should be. We like to think, oh, this guy's going to be a top-pairing defenseman, at least a top-four defenseman. And the more realistic outcome is that he's a 5-6 or probably doesn't even make it because most prospects don't make it. So what are the odds that Nick Robertson fills in in a top-six role next year at age 20? As much as we'd like it to be the case, as much as we'd like to talk ourselves into him playing alongside a Matthews or a Tavares and producing at a 20-plus goal rate, the odds of that happening typically aren't that good historically. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, he's an exciting player. He works his ass off, has a great shot. But the people who watch the AHL regularly that I talk to anyway say, look, he needs some more time. And he's still super young. He was one of the youngest guys in his draft class. That's not a knock on him as a prospect or a player. But it's about being realistic about what you can expect to get. So if nothing is coming from the pipeline, then you're left at... How do we get people who are going to beat the market? You get reclamation projects. Alex Kelchenyuk was one. Or you get old guys who want to take a cup, uh, a cup run and are less concerned with money, like Jason Spezza. And I think Arvin's point there is really significant. You probably can't count on that to give you an above average bottom six. 
And if that's all you can afford, then again, I think you have questions about where you're spending your money. So I think the hardest thing for me that that's been the most difficult and possibly the most upsetting that's just made me more upset every single playoff game that I've watched since is they've pretty much come out and it's like our four our top four guys are special like we like we think other teams would want them like we want to keep them and it sounds as if they're going to keep them and basically barring anything unforeseen at at best a Morgan Riley trade who was far from the problem come playoff time and has basically been their only consistently good player in the playoffs through five years other guys have had good playoffs and bad playoffs but Morgan Riley has actually consistently been pretty good in the playoffs especially when you consider his partners in some of those playoff runs yeah it's it actually reverts back to your point of their plan like it's basically praying to god that Nick Robertson comes in on an ELC and is good because to your like you're not beating the market to that much of a degree like i put an article up a week or two ago where i broke down the cap hits of the top 8 teams by line and you're like they're not even going by you know half a million like they're actually trying to beat the market out by like half like half the price you know like they're paying their their fourth line like 2 million or whatever it is you know 2 and a half 3 million while other teams are paying their fourth line like 4 and a half million and 5 million and they're paying you know their third line like 3 million dollars 4 million dollars less than other teams third lines that are actually good and I know everyone has kind of jumped onto this train of actually the the Canadian division was pretty good because the Habs are in the cup final. I I will go down I will die on this hill. The Canadian division sucked. And I think it I think it really Who's in the cup final? I could care less, man. Like <laughs> it it doesn't they've beat one like actually legit team cuz we know what the Leafs are come playoff time and Winnipeg stinks. So they beat one good team. Congrats. It was a great win for them, but I'm not going to go nuts on them. But what what happened in the Canadian division to me is basically other than the Habs, none of those other teams could rub together more than two lines. And watching and watching the playoffs in the first round, even like prior to the Leafs, you know, throwing it away, I was like watching Carolina and stuff with Jordan Stahl on their third line. I was like, this guy would absolutely run a train on a Pierre Engvall run led third line. Like he would. Like it would be it would be act- actively embarrassing. And you watch Yanni Gord on the third line with Tampa, and Tampa's like, yeah, we're just gonna throw him out there against the Philip Deneau line and let Braden Point basically pick and choose who he wants to dummy on the rest of Montreal's roster. The Leafs have nothing for that stuff. Like their bottom lines were terrible, and once Nick Foligno got hurt and basically came back and was like a corpse of himself. They had nothing. Yeah, the only good third line for the Leafs this year was when Zach Hyman played down there. And again, that's a player who probably isn't going to be on their roster next year. I don't think we should waste too much time talking about the contract. The idea would be that if you can bring him back on a long-term contract, maybe it helps you in the short term and hurts you in the long run. But the main topic that we seem to be discussing here is that the Leafs have bought into this stars and scrubs model where you pay your star end talent a lot of money and that leaves you with less money for your depth and you find a way to do that through free agency, through the draft, through other means to hopefully make up for the fact that, like you said, Anthony, other teams are paying more for their third line, for their fourth line, for their bottom pair. And the Leafs are at a disadvantage in that regard. I wanted to bring up a, a quote that I saw the other day on my timeline. It was a Steve Dangle quote, and someone used it in their yearbook. They said, 
I've believed in the Toronto Maple Leafs all my life. The least you can do is believe in yourself. And it's funny because as much as, as that sounds ridiculous as a, as a fan of a sports team, I've believed in this Kyle Dubas model for a long time. This idea that even though Mitch Marner is overpaid and even though I don't love those contracts, I truly believe in locking up a core, finding star talent through the draft, and then finding a way to supplement that star talent with role players that you can acquire via trade, via free agency, and ideally undervalued guys who can play hockey, maybe provide some of that physical toughness element, but also guys who drive play in the right direction and play on offense instead of defense. Watching it fail to work in the playoffs year after year has been incredibly frustrating for me. I don't want a small sample, a seven-game sample or whatever we're going to call it, to completely dictate how I think about a sport, but when you see it year after year after year, it gets to me, and it makes me wonder if I'm looking at this the wrong way. Do any of you guys have the same feeling, or am I alone on this island? There's The thing that I'm most sure of about the Leafs, I'm not 100% sure that the way that they're built is wrong, but I'm convinced that a lot of choices that they've made and a lot of things that have just gone wrong for them mean that they're a team with very little margin for error. The flat cap caused by the pandemic, obviously that's nobody's fault. But that lowers the ceiling on them. That tightens things. The fact that for a few years, we got basically nothing drafting after the first round. That hurts. That makes things a little tighter. Uh, the fact that we overpaid Mitch Marner after a terrific year that he had with John Tavares. That tightens things. None of these mistakes are fatal. But all of them mean that there is very little margin. And... That's why we find ourselves, you know, kind of bickering about is Pierre Engvall making too much money or stuff like that, even though they're trivial, because we're all kind of conscious that this team needs a lot to go right to be what it's supposed to be. And when something goes catastrophically wrong, like that John Tavares injury, and that's just brutal luck, but then this team is in deep trouble. It, it does really feel like this team has no buffer between it and fate. You know, if, if there's, if I can be a little superstitious for a second, it's not that the universe is really out to get us, even though in my heart, sometimes I feel like it is, but it is that this team is constructed so that it cannot suffer too much misfortune because it's so stretched in terms of cap and personnel. Can I bring up a quick uh, point about statistics and trying to use evidence to, to make uh, decisions in hockey? The Leafs, since Austin Matthews joined the team, have won zero playoff rounds. I think Jay Fresh ran the numbers on this, and the chances of that happening are 1.4%, which just seems crazy. In Game 7, if you looked at a model like Don Lushijan's, the Leafs were favored to win that game. These are all empirical. This is evidence. This is mathematically don't sound Don't tell processes. me this stuff, Ian. Honestly, like, you're going to make me mad. My point is mad. that you're I don't believe it. I don't believe it, despite the fact that my Twitter handle and my entire identity and how I try to go about evaluating hockey is grounded in this belief. And yet with this specific team, I don't believe it all the time. I think there's a factor in play that the models aren't taking into account. I don't want to say, oh, you can't measure heart. Don't tell me about heart. Don't tell me about grit. I don't want to say that. But at the same time, what the hell is missing? Because it feels like something is clearly missing. Anyone who watched the Leafs play game six and honestly didn't think that the series was over is a, is like, you're new. You're new here. And that's fine. Like, we welcome you with open arms. But you are absolutely, like, you're kidding yourself. I watched the first 50 minutes and I was like, this shit's over. Unless, unless something, you know, goes off somebody's ankle, 
something yeah like they're just praying to god that something goes right and it just somehow works and they advance but to, like watch game six and i've never seen a team come out so flat and just get so run over in such a pivotal pivotal like pivotal game jesus i'm so angry i can't like speaking the words i can't even speak them properly and articulate at this point but honestly like the it just I'll never get over that. I'll never get over how they came out for game six until they prove otherwise. Like, I'll just, I'll never trust them. Like, cards on the table, chips on the table, they've shown their hand too many times at how they come out when when things matter. Like, we talked about that 2019 uh, game five against Boston. Huge game. Go back and watch game six. Other than Morgan Riley, like, they were utter, we talked about no swearing on this podcast, they were utter dog shit. Other than Morgan Riley, every single player honestly was was absolutely brutal and here we go again same sort of situation and you know even columbus like they have the the heroic comeback and honestly a little part of my heart was like this would be classic if they lost in in game five and then we all watched it it wasn't even like you weren't even bad you're just like like i'm a fan of this team i watched them fullman and i uh did a podcast basically immediately after game four uh, of the columbus series so, you know, immediately after this huge comeback, and we were so dejected, we were as dejected as you could possibly be after a ridiculous, you know, 0.01% chance win, because we're just like, look, we know how this is ending, right? The Leafs should have, never been, should have never been in this position. This is exactly what this team does. They, you know, wait until, they're like a, you know, the prototypical smart kid who uh, tries to cram everything the night before. Right, and then you know, okay, manage magically work this time. There's no faith that they'll do that again, right? And that's obviously you know the irrational fan part of it talking. But at this point, they haven't proven us wrong. the The worst part is, I was watching I was watching Game Six with my dad. I went to my parents' house for for Game Six, and and they tied it. And you know, I let out like a little cheer, and my dad looked at me without blinking. And he's been a Leaf fan, you know, about double the time that I have in his life. And he was like, "You're cheering for this shit." <laughs> Like, like you, like you honestly think that they're winning. Like, like you think this game is acceptable. And I was like, I know. Yeah. I was like, I'm doing what they're doing. I'm just hoping that a puck goes off somebody's ankle and goes in the net and we get over it. But you bring back to the Kyle Dubas point and I actually went back and I, and I looked at this. So years and years ago, talk about blog wars and, and different hockey websites. I don't know if you guys would remember, but Pension Plan Puppets put out a web, uh, an article after a Dave Nonis offseason, you know, as to who would have a better offseason, a potato or Dave Nonis. That's one of my favorite articles of all time. Now, if the Leafs did literally nothing, basically, other than just re-signing guys, their, their forward group right now would be something along the lines of this. Hyman, Matthews, Nylander, Janssen, Kadri, Marner. They would have a third line with Connor Brown and Kasperi Kapanen, and a fourth line with maybe Moore, Trevor Moore, Pierre Engvall, and Carl Grundstrom. Does the, the potato overpay Mitch Marner? The defense would be terrible, still, to be clear. Like, you would have Riley, Dermott, Zaitsev, and Hole in there. I can't give them Rasmus Sandin because Kyle Dubas drafted Rasmus Sandin, so I don't know. So the defense definitely needs work, but the forward group to me is much better. And you can say that he has improved the team. Since then, and I'll take that argument. I mean, John Tavares alone, of course. Additions of Jake Muzzin and TJ Brody on defense were huge. Yeah. But holy cow, basically anybody could have taken over this team and lost in the first round for two more years. 
true. Like they they didn't even technically qualify for the playoffs the year like last year. Like they lost in the play in round after they, you know, were brutal for about half the season. So I don't know, my kind of thoughts on the like do you have confidence anymore? And then I'm watching everything get walked back right now. What's what what should we be excited? Ian, you sell me on it. What should I be excited for next year, buddy? So the last couple of years, I've put out a post-game article about Leafs games. I don't know if I want to do it this upcoming season because what the hell's the point? Why should yeah. I care about what happens in a regular season game with this Toronto Maple Leafs team? What what meaningful takeaways will you be able to take out of game 22 next season? Marner has a three-point night against Nashville on a Tuesday and plays 25 minutes. Congrats. You did it. And I can try to break down the power play. I can try to break down some tactical adjustments. Maybe they put a new line combo together that's doing really well over the last five to ten games and can pull up a graph and prove it to you. But in the grand scheme of things, who's going to care about this team in the regular season? It's going to suck next year. So it's tough when you're in this position where you want to care about these games. You want to care about this team. Everyone listening to this podcast, the four of us who are on it right now, we deeply care about this team. We're invested in this team. Time, for some of us, money. It's a big deal. We want to see them succeed. And yet we're at a point right now where the regular season is clearly meaningless at this point. It's to the point where until it's a gut check time in the playoffs, I'm not sure if anyone close to the Leafs, whether it's a fan, player on the team, person working for the team, how much meaning are you going to get out of a regular season game at this point with the Toronto Maple Leafs? Because I just I find it difficult to take too much anymore because knowing what happens in the playoffs, I don't know. I, I'm always a large sample guy. I always say focus on the larger trends, focus on the larger samples because hockey's a random sport. Bounces are going to happen. So, like you said, a puck's going to go off someone's ankle and in. So don't worry too much about the single games. Worry about the larger trends. The larger trend of the regular season to me is just losing so much meaning right now. It almost feels like basketball where I've stopped caring. Yeah, I think the regular season is what it always really is at heart, but it's a pretext to drink beer and make jokes. It has no meaning, and we aren't going to trust this team to do jack shit. Some people actually asked in the run-up to this podcast, says, you know, convince me to be optimistic. No, I can't. I'm sorry. <laughs> and, but, and, like, I don't think anyone should feel bad or disloyal about that. This team took a lot of fans' hearts, and then stomped on it year in, year out, forever. And I don't think that that's, you know, some sort of personal flaw on the part of these guys who are bad people or anything like that. But you're okay for saying, okay, I'm going to step back a little bit until this team wins a goddamn round. And for the record, I don't know how much to buy into the grit, the stick or something. I do think that if this team gets that puck off an ankle and it sneaks through around that way, that'll help. I do believe that this team doubts itself at times. Like, the way that team came out in Game 7, did they look like they thought they were going to win that game? No. Not for a second. I was basically celebrating 0-0 after one, where they got only slightly outplayed instead of absolutely speed-bagged. Yeah, and look, we saw it coming. After Game 6, I was like, they are going to come out on eggshells. And they did, and they looked terrible. And, you know... I think that however flawed they may be, they can be better than that in an elimination game if they stop waiting for the other shoe to drop. And a long way in doing that would be a lucky win. So, 
Now, here's the thing. In baseball, we say that uh, a guy who has a crazy high average with runners in scoring position, you know, the, the people on TV will say he's clutch, but the nerds will say, well, that's just randomness. Over, If you replay that a bunch of times, it's not going to keep happening. If the Leafs replay these games a bunch of times, are their stars going to keep shooting 2%? It depends if the games matters or don't. If they play them in the summer and it's a pickup game, I'm sure they'll be unreal. But if the games actually have repercussions, I don't know. I don't think so. And this is the, the optimist-pessimist fight that I get into with myself when I think about this team. I go, well, there's no way. There's no way Austin Matthews is going to finish a series with that few goals. He scored 41 in 53 games, and then he went cold in the playoffs. Is that because Philip Deneau has superpowers? To some extent, I think he's always been an elite defensive player, and... I also think he got drastically outchanced in that series, and Matthews probably should have potted an extra goal or two. So I don't know how much to just say the Stars have choked, the Leafs are doomed to never win a playoff round, and at some point, I, I always say with players, when a shooting percentage is really low, I say, well, it looks bad now, but those pucks are going to go in. We don't feel that way about this team. It's unfair to make those statements anymore. The only thing of note that I think can change if they keep everybody is they have to go to one of the big guys and say one of you has to anchor line three like we have to have three lines like i like you're not like you're not winning in the playoffs with two like you're just not like go go look at literally every cup team ever they roll the lines like you have to it's too taxing it's too much of a grind like you can't just look at at two lines or one and a half lines and be like this is it to go with you know coupled with a shitty power play like it just you're you're never winning like it's such a bad recipe and someone eventually just has to go and say i'm gonna carry the third line by myself like just the way you know like yanni gord does or whoever jordan stall like go down the line and when you look at vegas too we talk about it against the habs like like vegas was getting nothing from their bottom six other than tuck but like it just it wasn't enough so i I think someone needs to carry the third line for them to really kind of change things up and like, you know, someone has to eat it a little bit. Like, I get it. Your numbers aren't going to be as good and they need to not play their top guys so much and just gas them for no reason. And everyone's numbers are going to suffer across the board a little bit. But like, to be honest, where I stand, they've all been paid. Like, you don't need to, you don't need to other than you feeling good about yourself. Like, I don't care if Mitch Marner gets 110 points next year or 85. Like, I could honestly care less. But I would rather I would rather them play a proper style as opposed to I mean we talk about that article you talk about them being the bad guys when we talk about teams playing the right way and we talk about teams playing the wrong way the wrong way is quite literally you just give four guys a bunch of ice time and tell everyone to kind of suck it and the right way is you have four lines and and you roll them and you play like a team and they don't didn't they play the right way this year though they had such good defensive numbers team defense wise we said it all year we're like why are the top guys playing so much why don't they rest guys how many times did you and i talk about whether they should just give nylander some reps at center just to have them ready i mean gee that would have come in handy like it's not it's not even revisionist history for me like i literally said it for months just like give nylander reps at center like be ready like kerfoot is not that good even though he did have a good playoff like, you need to be ready for this kind of thing. And I get you lose Tavares and it impacts your odds of winning tremendously, but they still should have had enough to win. And they could they could not put together three lines in that series. And I don't even know if they were going to, even if Tavares was healthy, to be honest, the way that they had their lineup configured. And I think they just need to kind of sort that out. Like, we've, we've talked about it. They're not going to beat the market out 
that badly in this flat cap world where they put together a full bottom six. I read what their bottom six is right now, and it's brutal. Like, they need to figure it out. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, I think, I think the fundamental problem is that at some point, we just need, we just need more good players, right? Because, like, yeah, you, you, need, you need those guys on your, on your third line. But then, you, you know, you don't want to get in a situation where you're playing William Nylander 14 minutes a night for some reason, right? They were still kind of giving him low ice time. That, that's another thing that I wanted to talk about. Like, you know, you, you, you've, you've talked a couple times about the, the really elevated ice time for, for Marner and Matthews. And, yeah, especially in the playoffs, it's like, okay, look, Nylander's rolling. And it wasn't, you know, he got a bit lucky with some of the goals he scored. Some of the goals he scored were just, you know, frankly, bad goals, right? Yeah. But he was also, you know, he take, good, take those goals away. He was the most dangerous least player in terms of creating offense, too. He got given yeah. absolute kind of dog shit as line mates, right? And it, it seems yeah. like every single year... We go into an, uh, a playoffs, and it's like, okay, well, at least this year, Nienander's not going to have to play center for no reason. And then something will happen, and he ends up having to play center in like this uh, situation where you know it, it wasn't expected. But he, he acquitted himself really, really well this year. And to see that not get rewarded with the time when I said it necessarily deserved was, was a little bit um, off. So um, going back to Ian's point about you know how do we balance kind of the sense of optimism at all. I made this point off air as well. There's always a chance because with Washington, for example, the Washington team that won the cup was, I think, in a lot of ways, a worse team than the ones that came before it, right? Um, and the, the margins are small. Fulun made the point earlier that the Leafs are, as currently built, not able to withstand a large amount of bad luck, or really any amount of bad luck. And, and you know, a, basically every team will face some amount of bad luck throughout the throughout a postseason, right? Tampa last year didn't have Steven Stamkos. They didn't have their captain, right? They, like, they were in the same situation that the Leafs were in with not having Tavares. They won a cup. Um, so to some extent, you have to be able to overcome that. But there's also, you know, the possibility that the Leafs have a charmed year where they don't get unlucky at all and things just break right and, you know, they're able to make a deep run or even, you know, win a cup that way. The question I would be curious to ask Kyle Dubas, and this is something that our, our site manager Katya has, has mentioned a couple times, and I'm kind of shamelessly seeing this point from her. Um, is, his, is his philosophy that to, the best way of building a contender is to build a good enough team that gets to the postseason every year and then hope one year you just get lucky? Or is it to build a team that can uh, be invariant to that as much as possible to build a team that can take that bad luck and say fuck that we're winning anyways right and one is it, obviously you know it's not if, if Dubas could flip a switch and do that I'm sure he would but you know that that's what it comes down to it, it, is it acceptable to just be an okay playoff team and hope you get lucky one of these days I don't know and I'm worried that's kind of the path we're falling into so I'll say, I'll say no to that straight up, and I know this sounds nuts coming from a Leaf fan. Washington has had Ovechkin for 16 years. They've gone past the second round once ever, and it was that year that they won the Cup. And, like, honestly, that's not good enough for me. That Like, like what's the point? Like, why, why are they spending so much money on management and sports science and analytics department if they're going to have prime Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, William Nylander, and, you know, sort of out of his prime now, John Tavares, but still very good, who also threw down a 47-goal season when he got here, to go past round one once in, like, a decade plus? Or, sorry, go past round two? I mean, at this point, it might be round one. 
but round two we'll go with once in like a decade i'm it's just not like that's not good enough for me like literally anybody could do that like <laughs> you could hire someone with a very low level of intelligence to to take this core and and like pray to god like you go to the playoffs every year and just one year it just like it all comes together and you know things hit like that it's just, like that's not good enough for me well, is this Montreal team succeeding right now not proof that you just need to get to the playoffs and hope that your goalie rides a hot save percentage? How many times have they gone to the conference finals? Three times in the past 10 years? How many times have they gone past round one with Carey Price alone? I guess, yeah, that's something you could add up over time. I just, I was re reading uh, Moneyball recently because, of course, I was. That's just par for the course for me. And getting to the point where Billy Bean says that the regular season is the only thing that matters because the playoffs are a shit show. It kind of resonated for me as a Leafs fan just because I'm like, well, of course, you know, the bad bounces are going to come our way. But you watch other sports at a high level, and when you see the best teams who tend to continue to succeed, and not just because of dumb luck, but because of what Arvin said, yes, there's going to be, in a basketball game, there's going to be three-point shooting variants. Some nights you're going to get hot, some nights you're going to get cold. In hockey, some nights a goalie's going to be hot, some nights he's going to be cold. Sometimes the pucks are going to go in, sometimes they're not. But are you doing everything else in your power to shift the odds in your favor, to make sure that your team has the puck, to make sure that you're on the right side of center ice, to make sure that you're not only doing the right things defensively to prevent shot quality against, but you're doing the right things offensively to generate shot quality for. And I think when we're talking about shooting percentage, I think this is the key element that we're discussing. Are the Leafs generating high enough quality shots from their best players in key moments? And I think the answer that we would all say right now is no. And you want Austin Matthews to be in a better shooting position. You want Mitch Marner to draw in an extra defender so that he can make that backdoor pass that we all know he can make. So how do you get to that point? How do you generate it? Because you already have the star talent that's not going anywhere clearly. You can add a supplemental left winger, which they're going to add this offseason. They're probably going to lose Zach Hyman. They're probably going to look for a depth on the blue line. Zach Bogosian's probably going to come get re-signed. They're going to have cheap players who get added to this roster, but I don't see a major overhaul other than maybe uh, an underrated left winger like a Thomas Tatar potentially joining the lineup in the middle six. I could see that being something. But when it comes to these key moments in games, when you have this core, this, these players in a massive game where you need them to generate shot quality, what is it that's missing from this team? Because they clearly haven't been able to do it yet. Last year against Columbus, which was pathetic, and then this past year against Montreal, what are they doing wrong, and how can they fix it? I do think what we're all struggling with is, one, this team is obviously good enough to win a round. They could. They're also obviously, apparently, bad enough to lose five of them in a row. And so we're trying to square those two things in our heads. And it's uh, painful, to say the least. I think uh, Anthony's point is well taken, that... Having a third line that can do something would seem to go a long way. Um, one one road to that is trade Mitch Marner and then add more people. Another road maybe is see who can carry a third line. Because I am totally confident that Austin Matthews can work with lesser players. He's done it. John Tavares maybe is declining, but he made a career in, in Long Island of guys like Michael Grabner and shit. Pierre Parento. Yeah, like anyone who played with him was like, oh, that guy has 25, 30 goals now. Matt Molson, Kyle Poso, the list of players who did amazing with him. Tavares might be one of the modern leaders at getting his wingers paid above their actual value. Like Crosby is obviously the king of it, but even then, Tavares dragged some names. Anyway, but like that's the point. 
mentioned Crosby, but like, yeah, Tavares is kind of, he's like a baby Crosby, right? That was like his, his reputation in, in some circles for, for a while. It's like this, he's does a lot of what Crosby does just a bit worse. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, we can leverage that. Yeah. And so you, you look at that and you think, okay, there has to be some second option where things are going badly for the first line. That's been the recurring theme is things are going badly for the first line. Now what? And one, it looks like a bit of an indictment of Sheldon Keefe that he doesn't seem to have an answer for that. But two, that game five option against Columbus where he just stacked a super line, um, that looked silly and achieved nothing. And then against Montreal, Philip Deneau played excellent defense and also hung on for dear life a little bit, and it worked. And I think a lot of our strategy seems to be, okay, we just keep hoping our skill is going to tell. And if nothing else we've learned from these playoff runs is that it's not enough to say, well, we have the best players in this matchup. That should work itself out. We have to try something where we have the best players in more than one matchup or something else because any player can get slowed down for a stretch. And again, that's what I mean about this team has no buffer between it and fate. So the Leafs clearly made a point to acquire players who helped them hold on to leads. They acquired Riley Nash. They acquired Nick Foligno. TJ Brody, Jake Muzzin, obviously very good players, but guys who were strong defensively because they felt that they had the players to score the first goal, get the lead, and then in a third period in a one-goal game in the playoffs, that's where you don't trust them. So let's acquire more players who help us hold that lead. In their last couple playoff exits, they haven't been able to get the lead in the first place because they haven't been able to score enough goals. I'm wondering if they need to look and acquire players who, even if they have some defensive flaws, really help you get goals. And that's why I brought up a Thomas Tatar, because he's someone who comes to mind as someone who, right now, an NHL head coach has a problem with him. Is he a bit banged up and that might have something to do with it? Yes, but I think you might need to lean into a direction of players who, even if they're not the hard-nosed, gritty, veteran, playoff experience type of players, at the end of the day, I care about goal differential. And if you can help score goals and be half decent at preventing them as opposed to not scoring any goals and being pretty good at preventing them, I tend to lean towards the the former instead of the latter. And I'm worried that the Leafs might be focusing a bit too much on defense when in the last couple of years, the defense actually hasn't been the problem. It's been the offense. So I, I think some of those points converge uh, kind of a, at an interesting level. So, so Fulman kind of mentioned, you know, the, the top guys, not if, you know, if they're not coming through what's happening and, and Ian, you mentioned the regular season and, and baseball and Billy Bean. And for baseball, admittedly, I would give it a little bit more credence than I would for hockey in terms of the regular season mattering more. I think both sports are a bit of a shit show, to be honest. Yeah, I the thing is, is I, I think, uh, you know, they're both wars of attrition, but I don't think that regular season is even remotely close to playoff level caliber of hockey. Um, you know, you could argue the same for baseball and and I would take that, but I think just given how static that sport is and given how free flowing hockey is the difference between regular season hockey and playoff hockey, like they're like, it's, I think it's monumental. Maybe I'm crazy. I don't know, but that's how I feel when I watch them. I've been doing it for a long time at this point, but what I think happens a lot in the regular season is he, is they sit there and go, okay, like. Matthews and Marner aren't scoring, but if we continue giving them their 22, 23, 24, and, you know, they're getting their extra shifts against third and fourth lines because they're we're playing the shit out of them and we're going to play them more than every other team's top guys, like, they'll get a few matchups and, like, eventually they'll cash in in the law of averages, and that's how things kind of work. But that's not how things work in the playoffs. Like, there is no law of averages 
Like either you like you make it like you have potentially two weeks. If it's a Leafs case, it's only two weeks every year. Like you have two weeks to make it happen or you don't make it happen. And there's no pulling of there's no like I'm going to shift things around. I'm going to figure it out. Like I'm going to do something that's maybe a little bit unconventional but like it'll actually work to help me like win a game. Like you talk about like I want guys that put the puck in that. Like I want guys that are gonna win hockey games. Like Sidney Crosby was, was like the best player of our era. I don't think anyone would fight me on that. He wasn't playing 22, 23, 24 minutes a night when Pitt was winning their cups. So Sidney Crosby can't do it and you know go on to win a cup, but Mitch Marner can apparently. Can I counter? Absolutely. Is Mitch Marner better than Sid? My counter is you want the team's best players to play fewer minutes. Yeah, so that they can perform better in them. I would rather play a little bit less and actually be good in them as opposed to watching them in the third period look out of gas in the final 10. Like, honestly, if I'm another team, like the thing I want the Leafs to do is to play the tar out of their top guys because I'm laughing by the end of the series. See, I'd say rest them a bit more in the regular season, obviously, but in the playoffs, high leverage games, I want my stars playing as many minutes as they can physically handle. Go look at the time on ice then. If we want to talk about physically handle, go look at the time on ice of every cup winner and how they just distributed their minutes amongst forwards. And I promise you won't see anybody with that won a cup with forwards playing 22, 23 minutes a night. I think the highest that I saw over the last 10 years was Ryan O'Reilly who was like 20 and change or something, maybe 21 when St. Louis won. It's always hard with minutes because some of those have overtime minutes, so sometimes you have to go percentage of the game, and it's it's tough. But I hear what you're saying. You're saying, can a guy who's playing 23-plus minutes a night bring it consistently on every shift when the games are in the playoffs a lot more taxing shift to shift? Yeah, so you asked earlier if I believe in the core. I do. I don't believe in the coaching staff to do the right things to get them to where they need to be. Like, we watched the power play suck for two months. Like, it didn't just suck in the playoffs. Should we talk about the power play? Yeah. Is that something we should discuss at some point here? We will transition we to that, that now with the coaching staff. So we watched it suck for two two months and change. They literally did nothing. They're like, no one no one had the stones to say, Joe, you're taking a seat. It, they, they waited way too late before they did it, yeah. Like, I'm not, I'm not even simplifying it. Like, straight up, like, nobody had it, like the the gall to be like joe like take a seat every game i had to evaluate joe thornton in the bumper roll on pp1 i was just kind of ripping out my hair because it made no sense to me as someone who puts a lot of thought into his work and trying to understand okay how can you maximize the team's chances of scoring here it's not with a guy who doesn't shoot the puck in the middle of the ice that's just that's not a good place to put him i'd never understood that now here's the thing with the power play you would imagine okay this power play from about the halfway point in the season to the end of the regular season, even carrying into the playoffs, you, you, this is eye test, this is numbers. They weren't generating chances. They weren't gaining the zone with efficiency. They looked listless and predictable. They tried a few different things. None of it worked. Is firing the coach the solution? The Leafs clearly don't think so. It, do, it doesn't sound like they're going to be letting Manny Malhotra go. Arvind, I know that you have a lot of power play thoughts over the years, and you were actually one of the few who was really upset when Jim Hiller was let go. What are your thoughts on the Leafs' power play overall? Because it's an area of their game that fell way below expectations this year. And even though you don't want your power play to be the only thing that drags you to success, it can be something that gets you out of a game that you don't necessarily deserve to win. And the Leafs are the type of team that should have a top three, top five power play in the league, and they didn't this year. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely the first thing to note is that 
having an elite power play is part of the theory of being good. When you say um, we're going to spend, you know, so much money on four star forwards, you're not saying to be like, okay, yeah, we're spending all this money on four star forwards, top 15 power play, that's fine, right? You're like, okay, we're spending 40 million on these dudes, top five power play. This power play needs to strike fear into people's hearts. Like, fans need to, you know, turn off the TV when they take a penalty on us, right? That that That's how lights out it needs to be. And, um, I mean, to put it mildly, it wasn't. It started off super hot, both in terms of generating shots and uh, generating goals. And this is a pattern that we've seen a couple times recently with the Leafs in recent memories. They start out really, really hot. And then halfway through the year, teams seem to either figure them out or they get unlucky or a combination of both. It depends on how you want to view things. Um, so there's a lot of things that I think the Leafs power play can probably do a lot better. Um, it, it's it's odd in the sense that it, it, Marner has looked best on the power play. So actually, I'll, I'll back up for a second. It's, it's actually a little bit odder and harder than you think to put Matthews and Marner on a power play, both in their preferred spots, and have the power play be great. I, 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 that, that's kind of what I'm coming down to a little bit. Not impossible, but like the other positions need to be kind of quite carefully um, put out. Right? And, and the reason for that is, again, Marner is such a unique player. He's a supportive player. He's one of the best passers in the world. But yeah, his lack of shot makes things tricky. You need to provide him a lot of options. If he's on a power play, and he's the guy you're running your, your power play through, he needs to have options because he's not a huge shooting threat. So you need to give him, you need to give the defense a lot of other things to defend. And I think the power play that came in uh, his first few years in the league where he was on the second unit power play, I mean, I call it the second unit power play because Matthews wasn't on it, but you know, it, it, in effectiveness, it was, it was the first. Uh, it was really, really powerful because it had Marner on the right side. You had Kadri in the middle, a left shot, perfect for high tips. Marner is great at feeding those in. Kadri's a great bumper. You had JVR down low, left shot, so he could, uh, you know, do execute jam plays, execute his through the legs. He could center it back out to um, to uh, Kadri easily, and then you had Bozak, who was, you know, there. Yeah, he won the face off and he got out of the way. Yeah, he was sneaky for backdoor passes though from JVR. Like. Exactly, and and he was a right shot, so for backdoor passes, it actually worked really well for handedness. Right, JVR could hit him on one timers and he would finish easily too. Tyler Dello was the first person who I saw point this out where he said that just plopping Matthews in the Bozak spot and then setting him up there is not going to be as uh, straightforward and as successful as people think it might necessarily be. And that's kind of what turned out to be the case, uh, at least to, to some extent. So, yeah, I mean, I still think you can actually absolutely set up a power play well there, uh, but it's, it's a little bit trickier. And the Leafs have, have never done it. I think at some point, you know, for the first few weeks of the power play being ass... I was like, okay, you know, they're they're trying stuff, they're figuring it out. We'll we'll see what happens. And it just kept going. I'm like, okay, guys, you know, you can figure it out now. You know, you, you can stop playing with them. And it just kept going, and they never figured it out. Um, the Thornton thing was the most obvious issue, right? We, I, I touched on it already. Playing two guys who are non-threats on the power play, non-shooting threats on the power play, big mistake. Having one of them be in the middle of the ice, also a big mistake. Um, there's been talk about the Leafs needing more of a point shot threat, and I mean, I wouldn't say no to it if it was offered, but I also don't think that's a huge issue. Um, I don't want to be a power play that's centered around the point shot. Y you want to have some respect for it, and you know you need to take it every so often. But I, I think that's a red herring. We we've had elite power plays with Morgan Riley before. I don't think that's impossible. I really think it's the, the setup for it. And it it's insane to me that William Nylander 
didn't get more time on the first unit power play um, because he is so perfect as a net front option. I think the hard part is the fit with Marner and Nylander because if you have Marner on the right wall with the puck, Nylander doesn't make sense as a net front. You could play him in the bumper role, but again, the play that Marner wants is that high tip to a left shot. Yeah, not the one-timer. Not the one-timer for a right shot. So it's funny. You have all this talent. You have Matthews. You have Marner. You have Nylander. You have Tavares. And the question is, where do you put them all on the ice? Where's the best way to maximize results? I think this is what Anthony's going to get into, maybe. Um, But, yeah, like, there's nothing saying, you know, Marner isn't surgically attached to the right wall or to the left wall. We moved him to the left wall sometimes, too. He can also play behind the net, maybe, right? And pass to shooters like Nylander, right? So... Uh, I, I, I don't know if that's where you're going, Anthony, but, you know, Nylander also has utility as a shooter. Yeah, like, I, we're all watching Tampa. I mean, it's it's pretty hilarious. Hedman gets the point, the puck up top, and he's like, are you cheating to Stamkos or are you cheating to Kucherov? And then I will pass it to the other one, and they will tee off. And that's it. All right, and then Kucherov gets the puck, and he's like, are you cheating to Hedman? And are you taking away my shot? And I'm just going to pass it to point right in the middle of the ice. And he, like... Like, this isn't, like, rocket science. Like, if Riley has the puck up top and Austin Matthews is on one side and William Nylander's on the other, one of the two is getting a really good shot. And one of the, like, their power play sucked for two months. And I said this to Ian a number of times. If they literally just put Matthews on his one-timer side for those two months and they said, we're going to feed you every single one-timer humanly possible, it would have literally been better. Like, with zero strategy whatsoever. If they just said, stand at the top of the circle and we will feed you and you will hammer the puck, and we will have a guy in front. They would have scored more than what they did for two and a half months. And that's with zero strategy whatsoever. So we talk about the coaching staff and the R&D and all the work that they're doing. And and we're literally sitting here going, like the absolute bare minimum, like the dumbest thing that you could have done, and it would have worked better than what you guys did for a very long period of time. And that's my biggest frustration with them. The best chances that they got in the playoffs off the power play and I, I re-watched the power play a bunch of times because I was trying to figure out what went wrong and don't do it that's an awful exercise it, it's just gonna hurt to do but and they scored in the power in the playoffs yeah. with Nylander on one side and Matthews on the other and Marner I don't know what kind of muffin he would have floated into Carey Price's chest but I honestly like I almost threw my remote at the tv when that puck went in the net because I just knew it wasn't gonna happen again and yeah, the best chances they got were with, with Nylander on the left dot and Matthews on the right dot. Again, two shot threats, like you said. The best power plays in that you think of Colorado, McKinnon on the left side, Rantanen on the on sorry, yeah, McKinnon on the left side, Rantanen on the right side. Two shot threats. Then again, we brought up Washington a bunch in this podcast. Nicholas Backstrom is not a shot threat. And he has famously been able to have one of the best power plays in the NHL alongside Ovechkin. How come Mitch Marner can't do that? Whether it's from the right wall or the left wall, why can't he be the non-shooting passer to an elite shooter on a successful power play? But Backstrom has two shooters to play off of because Carlson is a shot threat. So he can at least sit there and say, like, I'm going to like force you one way or the other, but one of these two is getting off a bomb. Whereas, what like, what's Marner going to do? Pass it to Morgan Riley on his non-shooting side to float a wrist shot to the net? What about Tavares in the slot? But that, like, that's such a hard shot. Just to add on to Anthony's point, TJ Oshie and Evgeny Kuznetsov are pretty high-end shooters, too. Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, and they can work that down low play. So he has a number of options, and he could basically just... He's the composer, and he's just playing the PK. And I just... 
I don't know. I go back to this, like we're talking about strategy. I just ultimately like in my heart, I go back to everything. And I know Ian, you put out the report about Marner and the power play. I think the coaching staff is scared of their best players. I think they're scared to hold people accountable. I think there's like, we talk about vets and yes, in a vacuum is the Simmons signing bad. No, it's two years and they could bury the contract, but does it bother me? Because I think he's going to play every single game. Yes. That's why I don't think that they have it in them to be like, you're playing poorly, take a seat. I don't think they're going to do it. I don't think that they sit there and go, our bad players are playing bad on a Tuesday in November. Take a seat. They sit there and go, I don't really want the aggravation or the media story because I benched Matthews because he dogged it on a back check or whatever the case is. I think these guys get their ice time no matter what. I think it's really, I think it, it, it's still a team sport. Like, you can call it if not, it's a team sport. I think it's really bad to the team elements when you're like, I'm just going to keep playing these guys no matter what they do. And that's kind of like, that's how I think that they run this show. They're just like, we have our top four guys. They can basically do whatever they want. There's essentially no repercussions. You talked about, ne- actually, it's not even that true. We talked about Nylander and his time on ice. Nylander for the first half of the season did not inspire me much, but he was actually really good for the second half of the season. And he was playing 16 a night. And about halfway through that, if I was him, I would have gone into the dressing room and broken every single stick in the room. Because I would have been sitting there playing, going, I'm actually playing Unreal. And I'm playing 16 a night while these guys are picking up 23. That was also him in the first four games of the series, maybe even five. Basically all of them until everyone lost it. And then finally at the end, Keith was like, well, everyone's complaining. So it was like he caved to the pressure more than he thought it was the right thing to do. Right. Like he went back after the after the series and they were like, would you change anything? And he was like, no, not really. I was like, cool. But like you, you have the recipe. So this is good. This is good. I can't wait to have you back for another year. I, I do think that this, there's something that in, is sort of it runs through the whole organization for the last couple of years. And to be clear, I haven't always called it out because at times I've been like, yeah, they seem to be right. But I think that there is a a confidence in the Leafs organization that we have Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner. And ultimately that is going to tell that is going to make the difference. It's okay that we're overpaying Mitch Marner. You know why? Because he's Mitch fucking Marner. He's so good. And it's okay to keep hammering against this rock with a power play because ultimately, of course they're going to start scoring soon. Mitch Marner is that good. And it's okay to keep running this line out against Philip Deneau. Because they're going to overcome him sooner or later. He's Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews. And we're not going to trade anyone in this core. Because they're Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews. And it after a while... And by the way, I sort of believe this. They're great players. And for the longest time I was like, yeah. These are the best players we've had in years. But I'm starting to be like... There is a confidence in this core... That seems to imbue both coaching and management decisions. That I'm starting to be like... You'd better... Yeah, or at least, like, you had really better hope that you're right. And I almost wonder if if Kyle Dubas' decision-making at this point is governed by, well, I'm on this road now, like he feels committed. We talk about Tampa. Like, Kucherov has joined, um, I don't know, Gretzky and Lemieux as the only player to have back-to-back 30-plus point playoffs. And Braden Point almost actually broke what I thought was a basically untouchable record and 10 straight playoff goals. And John Cooper came out and he was like, yeah, you're not playing against Deneau game one. Like, I don't care. Like, I see what's happening here. 
Whereas Keith came out and he was like, we're not hiding our best players from everyone, from anyone. And everyone was like, that's sick. And I was like, is it? Is it going to be sick? <laughs> I don't know about that. In Keith's defense, that was before the Tavares injury as well, right? So I think the, the idea is, okay. But they still would have played against to know. Well, no, but I think the idea is like, look, they have one line to, to worry us. We're, you know, second line is going to run train on the rest of them. That, that was the hope. But the Nylander line scored. Yeah, but like, I, I think that was a more defensible argument than it, like, I think it gets memed a bit now. And I don't think it was as indefensible. As, as, as one would, would think initially. I don't mind him coming out with that, but then the situation changed, like, literally game one, but he did not yes. change at any point throughout the series, so... That's absolutely fair. Yeah. Adapting throughout the series, I think you could make a criticism for Keith, not just this playoff series, but last playoff series, adapting throughout the course of a playoff series. We had these criticisms with Babcock. I know in basketball right now, I'll make this statement again, this is uh, Mike Budenholzer, the coach of the Bucks. One of the biggest criticisms against him is that as something starts to clearly happen in a playoff series, it's the coach's job to adapt and make sure that the team is put in the best position to succeed. Would you guys say that Sheldon Keefe has done that the last two years? I don't think that he has any tricks in his bag, so to speak. Maybe there aren't any to some extent, but I think that, you know, and Anthony's raised several of them, there are things that I would have liked to see him try. And it's curious because... He seems to throw everything else in the blender during the regular season, except Matthews and Marner were glued at the hip. You know, like there were certain things that he just wouldn't touch, and they stand up by contrast to, yeah, I'll try Pierre Engvall or Ilya Mikhaev or whoever the hell else, um, you know, in the top six left wing. Don't even get me started on the VC signing. That was embarrassing from day one. The fact that they walked him into the top six for free. I, I did, you know what? I, I talked to... Um, a friend of ours who's like a Sabres fan. And before that, he was like, the thing about VC is that he scores goals and he does nothing else 5v5. And so you're going to hope that he can be complimentary on a top six line, but he won't be able to do it because he's not good enough for the other stuff. So he'll end up sort of farting around in your bottom six. And that was exactly what happened. And he scored a little bit early, like yeah. an empty net or two, basically off a pass from Nylander, I think against Vancouver or something. Everyone was like, oh, this is sick. I was like, this guy sucks. <laughs> and then he went dead cold, yeah. Yeah. He scored the goal off the ref, too. I was like, this mm. guy's terrible. <laughs> Just. Sustainable. Yeah. Walked him right in. But yeah, to your point, like he has no, he has no tricks in the bag and I just, I like, I just keep going back. Like, I, I, I think he's, they're genuinely, like, they're scared of the top players. Like, they're scared to hold anybody accountable. I think they came out and the general tone was like, you know, you have to learn how to lose. Like, I honestly couldn't imagine sitting there prepping for the end of season pref- pressers. And, you know, I'm in, like, the Leafs management group. And it's like, guys, we're going to come out again. This is year five now. And Dubis and Shanahan have absolutely been here for those five years. You can say they, you know, Dubis wasn't the GM, but he's been here, so he's felt it. And just say, yeah, guys, we're going to trot out that you have to lose again to, like, learn how to win. Like, at some point, like, you have to come out and just say, like, this is garbage. I think fans would have actually resonated with that a little bit more than Mitch being like, nope, I'm not really going to change anything. And which I thought was a strangely worded question at the beginning, in fairness, because like the reporter said something about like him as a human and like changing himself. But the the general question was about like if he would change anything heading into the playoffs, the answer should have been yes. Or at minimum, I need to review it. But like they came out, it was just like we missed chances and, you know, it sucks, but we'll learn from it. And, you know, our top four guys are special and 
we're all gonna you know hold hands and be special and have our feelings to ourselves and you know hope that everything just plays out and I don't know like I just I can't like the fact that they're gonna sit here and go look the Habs went to the cup they're good we they might even say the Habs won the cup we lost to the champs like we're on our way like it just it happens like it's just it's not enough for me so at the end of those uh, press conferences, the year-end press conferences that we all love listening to, we've gotten so used to it at the end of a disappointing first-round playoff loss again. This is going to be the last question that I ask as a roundtable discussion because we've gone a bit long here, and understandably so. We have a lot of thoughts on our mind. The big buzzword that came out of those press conferences was killer instinct. And the year before, it was tough to play against. And I get worried when we use buzzwords like these because I think it gets away from the actual player evaluation process. I think instead of looking at players who impact the game at 5-on-5, five five, do little things to help advance the puck up the ice, win puck battles, and then score a goal or prevent a goal, we start thinking of guys' personalities and we start thinking of the way that guys carry themselves and present themselves. And frankly, I'm not sure how much that has to do with putting a hockey puck in a net. And I know that the Wayne Simmons contract isn't something I want to talk too much about, but I do want to know what the hell killer instinct is and how do you acquire it? Because it's going to be something the team clearly tries to address this offseason. And frankly, I don't know what it is. And that's why it concerns me. I don't think that that's something that you can really judge from the outside, and it may just be as simple as, did the puck go in when you needed it to? Then you got the kill. That was the killer instinct. I think what it has to be is, okay, we measure this by, does the puck go in at the critical moment? How do we put our players in a situation where a goal is likely to happen at the critical moment? And that's everything that we've talked about in terms of, do you get favorable matchups? Do you get better depth? Do you get guys who can score down the lineup rather than, you know, Engvall and Mikheyev, God bless them, are especially skilled at making nothing happen. And so, as much as I'd like to believe that the killer instinct is something that can be instilled, I think to whatever extent it's real, it has to just be, again, I hope this team gets lucky and starts believing it can win a series. But more than anything, the team should be focusing on how do we make it so our team scores goals when they need to. I, I kind of agree with, with Fulman, I think. A killer instinct is something that you only ever define after the fact, right? Post-hoc evaluation? Kind of, yeah. So it, I I think we'll develop the killer instinct, you know, retroactively once we win a playoff series, if we win a playoff series. And I, I think all we can do before then is make the best damn hockey team possible. I, it, it's a difficult proposition to be in now because of the, you know, the cap situation that we're in. Um, but, you know, that's why Kyle Dubas is making a lot of money. So that, that's on him to figure out. So I'm sure we'll have more off-season content as uh, things wrap up here, especially with uh, when the Stanley Cup gets awarded. I feel like that's when Leafs content is going to go into overdrive because there's a lot of things to talk about. Before we get out of here, I just wanted to ask Arvind and Fulman, where can people check out your work? Because I've been an avid reader and listener of your podcast for a while now, but for anyone who's listening to you for the first time, where can they check out your work? You can obviously catch all of our stuff on PenchmanPuppets.com. So you can also follow us on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at RV, A-R-V-I, and Fuleman's is at A-T Fuleman. Is there any thought on changing pension plan puppets now that the Toronto's pension plan doesn't own the Toronto Maple Leafs anymore? We have a discussion about it every single year. And in that discussion, I shout, it's tradition, and then plug my fingers in my ears and refuse to accept any logical arguments. So, so far, I've won. Acting the Fuleman, not wanting to change... 
Shocker. <laughs> I wonder sometimes, like, how many people even know who Nick Kuhleman is anymore? Because I bet there are a lot of young fans who don't know a random Russian third-line winger from eight years ago or whatever it was. Hey, he made up a solid top six NHL line one year, okay? We'll always have that one year. He, he scored 30 goals. Yeah, on do- a double shooting percentage, but still, he worked his ass off. I always like that I can look back now and be like, guys, I've seen this shit happen for like 15 years. <laughs> and, you know, on that note, I'll say to Ian, as, as we wrap up here, like to me, like they're only ever like in my heart, like they're only ever really going to make the step when the team stops being about four guys and how they can make those four guys the best possible players they could be. And it actually turns into how do we use these four guys to make the rest of the team really good and bring out the best in the entire group and be an actual team because I just I'll happily admit if I'm wrong I just I don't see a world where they ride really really high ice times for two guys and they dress like a you know like a basically a a shitty and that's the nice word that I'm using I'm thinking right now a shitty bottom six to a cut like I just I don't see it I I don't see it we've watched the playoffs too many years I we've never once watched a team where we're just like man, those like two or three or four guys are carrying them and like the rest of the team does like sweet fuck all. And like, here they are. They're here. Like, it just, I can't like go look at every cup team ever. You actually look and you go, wow, that third line was disgusting. And about all three of them became top six forwards on other teams. Or that guy was playing like way down the lineup than he really should have. You never sit there and go, holy shit, Mikheyev has zero goals in 12 playoff games. And if I gave him a puck right now and said, hit the side of that barn, he would miss it or he would fan on the puck regression to the mean there's no regression to the mean and i actually like mikhaev but like you know holy cow you just i don't see teams win championships like that so either they have to dilute the money or they have to sit there and say how are we going to use these four guys to make the whole group of 12 better but those are the two options so far they seem to be ready to do none of them and they hope that 38 year old jason spezza can be sick again on the fourth line so you know, that's a plan along with like maybe Nick Robertson figures it out. So, you know, cool. That That's kind of where we're at with the team right now. And I'm, I would love to be wrong. I'd love to come back a month from now, have these guys on and be like, yeah, he, he figured it out. He actually did some stuff. But I actually think we're going to be back in a month and be like, this is the same shit that we talked about. That Like this was obvious. So that's kind of where I'm at. That's why I'm down on them. I just want to see a competent power play, and I can't believe I'm saying that about the 2021 Toronto Maple Leafs, but again, I think that's uh, a large factor in their demise this year, and there was never going to be a positive way to get out of this conversation. I hate the fact that I have to wrap this up right now, but thank you for joining us, Fulman. Thanks, Arvind. This was a cathartic, I like to say rational, but let's be honest, there's a lot of emotion in this, and I don't think there's any escape in that when we're talking about the Toronto Maple Leafs. So thanks a lot for joining us, guys. Me and Anthony will be back next week to talk about the Leafs again and what they're going to do this offseason. I'm looking forward to it just as much as you are. You've been listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast. For news, opinion, and analysis, make sure to go to mapleleafshotstove.com and join the conversation.